0: The US, you know, is still really pretty good at coming up with new gizmos and new ideas, new inventions. We've got an entrepreneurial segment of our culture that is still functioning and thriving. And this needs to be doubled down on in in energy and, and the technologies related to energy. But we've not been particularly good about capitalizing on those inventions. We, you know, we've been losing manufacturing. One of the reasons for the discontent in the working class is that we haven't done a good job of capitalizing on the inventions that we produce here. And so we need to do that as well. And that's where you really need to have an education and training program, not just focused on the engineers who are gonna invent the you know, the better electrolysis process and make a bajillion dollars doing it, but also the people who are gonna be working in the low carbon industries that you need.
1: Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Pakala, the Frederick D. Petrie Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton University and chair of the committee that wrote the report, Accelerating Decarbonization of the US Energy System for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Welcome to Energy Talks, Dr. Pakala.
0: I'm happy to be here, Markham. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Well, Steve, uh, your uh, study lays out nine technological and social economic goals that need to be reached in the United States by 2030. Seven of them, arguably, are of the technical variety that have been dealt with in other decarbonization studies, but two of them or not and those are deal with the social aspect which you think is very very important to the energy transition. So those are that's what we're going to talk about today and let's start with the first one which is promoting equity and inclusion. And uh, I'll read from the uh, from the study, policy should work to eliminate inequities in the current energy system. That disadvantage historically marginalized and low-income populations. Uh, what uh, give us some examples of those, sir? Well, the
0: the um, uh, y- y- first I, I just comment that historically, you know, a year ago, um, you could have a discussion of the energy system, and that that issue, the issue of equity and inclusion, never really came up, and and something happened across the board, certainly in the United States, but my colleagues in other countries tell me the same is true in other countries. All of a sudden, with the events around the world that transpired um, last spring, uh, this issue came to the forebrain of humanity, and it was time to deal with it. Colleagues that, that work in oil companies, colleagues that work in environmental NGOs, colleagues that work in government, all say the same thing you can't have a discussion about serious and weighty matters that involve the whole of society and not talk about equity and inclusion now. Now, in the United States, I'll just talk about the United States because um, not for chauvinistic reasons, but because the report that, that we all did is about the United States and only about the United States. In the United States, there is demonstrable, and for me as a science and tech guy, uh, you know, a surprising level, of environmental injustice built into the system. First and foremost among these is that poor and historically marginalized groups are subjected to worse um, fossil fuel pollution, conventional air pollutants, with the health impacts that go with them, which are really serious than our other groups. And yet they have poorer energy services And they have very little share in the benefits of the energy production itself. They have no say in citing decisions, right? And yet they're subjected um, uh, to the downside of the energy system. So the idea is that if we're going to transform the energy system in the United States to a net zero one, then this is something we could address
1: so that we don't repeat the injustice that's in this one. Could we or could you give us an example, a concrete example of what you're talking about?
0: Sure, Um, uh, one of the first, um, let's talk about energy poverty here, all right? So if if I ask you what fraction of your um, household budget you spend on energy, the answer is gonna be not a very high percentage. Um, uh, Nationally in the United States, we spend a, a few percent of our total GDP on energy. But a person in a low-income group can spend 40% of their income on it. And it leads to a cycle of energy poverty, where to function, where to work. You have to pay these bills, but you can't really afford it. On the the, um, health impact side, there are just super abundant epidemiological data. Why is asthma so common in inner cities? Why, in fact, if you look at the respiratory Uh, illness that leads to the death of hundreds of thousands of people, right? Why is it concentrated among the poor? And the answer is that they're the ones that are exposed.
1: Could we use the example of the recent uh, Texas uh, power outages in the midst of the, uh, you know, the severe winter storm that they had? Because we're hearing stories now of these huge bills that uh, low-income earners in particular are getting because Texas has an energy-only type of market, which means that you pay kind of what the going rate is. And when there's a huge shortage, a 20 gigawatt you know, uh, shortage of electricity, your, your prices spike and people are getting $10,000 bills. And it seems that the, we're hearing from uh, poor and marginalized folk who are uh, often uh, are the ones receiving these bills and they simply have no means of paying. Yeah, you know, I, uh, the the, um, the 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 high
0: cost of the energy bills from those that were lucky enough to keep their power during this outage, right? It, it comes from the fact that I think that the total cost—I can't forget, remember exactly what the number is—but I think it comes goes up to something like nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour. I mean, it's a lot of money. On the other hand, to burn that much electricity, you've got to have a pretty good sized house. All right. Now, the poor people, I think, that you're talking about probably have a smaller um, electric bill than the real shocking numbers that you you, you see in the newspaper of $10,000 or more. But that smaller bill is a much larger fraction of their income. It's a fraction of their income. They don't have resources. They don't have savings. They have no money to pay for it. It could lead to bankruptcy of a person like that. The person with the $10,000, Uh, I've been suspicious the person with the $10,000 bill is probably living in a McMansion, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And and left the windows
1: open, (laughs) right? Oh, no, fair enough. And so let's talk about some of the things that can be done to to combat these. And so in your study, you recommend increased funds for low-income households for home electrification and weatherization, for broadband internet access for low-income and rural areas and increased electrification of tribal lands. Now, I can't imagine. Let me rephrase this. There are still tribal reserves that need to that don't have electricity. Oh, it, it's it's just a shocking situation. How what how low the fraction is in a lot of tribal lands. People that lack basic services of all kinds. Well, that is interesting. Now. This is, uh, I'm wondering about this, Uh, the distributed energy that comes with uh, rooftop solar in particular, uh, but could be community uh, solar farms as well, and maybe small uh, wind turbines, it's kind of a democratization of energy where it's no longer as centralized as it used to be, or at least it doesn't have to be. And is there an opportunity uh, with a new strategy and the new technologies that are available uh, to not only provide some of these folks, uh, you know, affordable energy, but also do it in a way that they or the community have greater control over. There's no question about
0: that. The, the I mean, there, there, there are a number of dimensions in which the energy system can be made uh, more equitable. The first is that um, a net zero emitting uh, energy system, doesn't have conventional fossil pollutants. So all of that just goes away, all right? All of that fence line pollution stuff just goes away. And what you said is also true that wind and solar is, distributed broadly across the land. Fossil energy resources, both the location of the fossil as it's extracted from the ground and also where it's burned like in a power plant, those are really concentrated facilities, right? Where where, that occupy a relatively small fraction of the total land. Whereas wind and solar when it's built out will be distributed on many, many places. And the rural locations we'll see Um, Per per capita, a much greater installation simply because there's available land. And so for the rural poor, this will be a real real, uh, benefit. Now, the exception is in those regions that happen to also be regions of, say, fossil energy production, the coal fields, the oil fields. Um, or um, uh, heavy fossil fuel use. The town in the Midwest in the United States that has a coal-fired power plant and is the dominant employer—there, you've really got a problem to make up um, if that facility closes. But on—but the number of communities that that get new jobs and new sources of revenue is much larger than the number that lose.
1: Now, including Brock- that doesn't help
0: if you're one of the ones that lose. So I want to make make it clear that we're worried about the people that are going to lose even though they're in a minority of
1: communities. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I was interested to see that the broadband internet access is included in your list and I want to use my own example, uh, own case as an example of why broadband internet access could be so critical to creating jobs. I mean, we do energy media interviews on Zoom uh, around the world uh, and we do it. From a, a home-based office in a, a city of 10,000 people on a big island off the west coast of Canada, and this is in many ways, in many parts of America would be considered a rural or you know small small community, and yet we can do this kind of work because of the technology we have, and, and can access through broadband broadband internet, and so I think of you know some of these rural poor or, or inner city poor folks who could perhaps use broadband internet to create uh, or access employment and business opportunities that would never, they would never have access to, uh, you know, before the internet came along.
0: There's no question uh, about that. Uh, in the summers, I live uh, off the opposite coast of Canada on an island, <laughs> and uh, I've got pretty good broadband there, you know, <laughs> and uh, um And so I can maintain the reason I can live there is I can maintain my my work um, the way we all have during the COVID uh, lockdowns, or at least a large fraction of us. The reason that broadband is also, though, in an energy um, study and as part of energy recommendations is that you also need broadband to effectively manage the variable grid that comes from a wind and solar heavy uh, grid. We need a smart grid. And so you need smart meters and smart meters need to be web connected.
1: Very interesting point. Well, let's go on to supporting communities, businesses, and workers. And your study says that any fundamental technological and economic transition creates new opportunities as well as job losses and other associated impacts in legacy industries. So the uh, the last energy transition that I think has a lot of lessons uh, for the current one is the switch from uh, horses and steam and coal to petroleum and in the internal combustion engine. And look what that did during the 1920s when farmers began adopting tractors and combines in a very very large way. I mean, you essentially began the the emptying out of of rural uh, Canada and rural uh, uh, U.S. Uh, USA, and that you know folks flooded into the cities it was a major major change in the in the structure of uh of our economies and our societies and i assume that what you're suggesting here is as if we have a similar process take place that it be managed a little better and a little more equitable and have i got that right Yeah, you do. You know, so there are
0: ethical reasons to try to take care of the legacy workers and the locations with heavy dependence on legacy infrastructure that, you know, that is no longer needed um, uh, in a transition. But there are also simple pragmatic reasons to maintain a transition. In this case, one that's going to take 30 years, you're going to have to maintain public and political support. And, you know, there's an asymmetry of how people care about gains and losses, although a lot of people will gain, right? We estimate in the United States more than a million new jobs during the 2020s, and they are good, good jobs. It's the people who lose that are devastated, right? And if you've lost fossil employment and you're, you know, that's the dominant employer in your town, what are you supposed to do? Now, historically, we've, as you mentioned, we've thrown those people under the bus. They just had to, to move on. Look at the yellow vest movement in France this last summer. It's a group of workers who couldn't afford, you know, low-income workers couldn't afford, afford the carbon taxes that were bearable by the majority of the French. And they really got angry about it. And and shut France down as a result. Same sort of thing is likely to happen almost anywhere. So simply for pragmatic reasons, if we're going to to um, to to complete the transition, we're going to have to take care of the legacy of the legacy workers. In the United States, the transition is already happening, and we see the hollowing out of coal mining communities across. Uh, the Appalachian corridor where coal is mined in the United States in the Midwest and and in the West. Uh, We also see coal-fired power plants shutting down all over the place and hollowing out their communities that are dependent on them. The recent announcement by General Motors that it's only going to build electric cars by 2035, imagine what that'll do to the price of oil globally is a harbinger that, you know, oil and gas is next, but we have a little more time for oil and gas because the studies indicate that you don't start to lose those jobs until, you know, well, not in earnest till around 2030 or so during a transition. So we're gonna to have to take care of those people in a way that we haven't in the past.
1: Well, let's talk about another aspect of the oil and gas worker transition. And I've done a fair amount of reporting on this in both the U.S. and Canada. And that's the effect of digital technologies, robotics, automation, and so on, uh, regardless of whether there's uh, uh, competition coming from electricity or displacement coming from electricity. And we—I just did an interview a few months ago with Ernst & Young on the Canadian oil patch, and they predict a 30% reduction in uh, work uh, in employment. Uh, by 2040 but other experts in the field say that's way too conservative it'll be 2030 and maybe even 2025 simply because of the pace of things like artificial intelligence that are sweeping the uh, the industry so now you've got that particular industry which is you know places like texas a very large employer and now they're being uh, affected by several really big you know tsunamis of change you've got on the one hand Oil now has a competitor and will one day start to decline, uh, uh, demand will start to decline. And then on the other hand, you've got internally, the companies will want to be more efficient, right, to compete, the ones that remain. And so they'll be adopting these new digital technologies that replace workers and lower costs. That, that's, to me, screams out for policy support.
0: Yeah, th- that's right. And and it is true that um, everywhere in the world, automation is affecting sort of primary extractive industries disproportionately. You see pictures of, you know, a giant strip mine in Australia with all of the enormous dump trucks, the big rock trucks being um, robots, right? There's nobody driving them. There's like two people in the entire huge mine, right, running the whole thing. Uh, a coal mine, especially like a mountaintop mine, looks much the same way already, and is maybe I, I'd have to check, but I, I, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's the dominant reason for the job loss, even greater than the, you know, cheap natural gas and and cheaper than anything wind and solar now. Um, so, so the question is what what to do about it, and the good news again is that if you look at total employment especially blue-collar employment in the United States, and I'm sure the same will be true of Canada, under a transition to net zero, because the energy system has more stuff in it, carbon capture and storage at cement plants you know, that weren't there before, if you total up all the jobs, total up all the wind and solar jobs, deduct the lost fossil jobs, you end up with a big net gain. And so, you know, you've got something that you can work with. Now, the downside is, as I said before, the wind and solar jobs locally around a a concentrated community that had fossil jobs probably aren't going to replace those fossil jobs because, you know, the, 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 the energy intensity per unit land area of fossil is so high where it occurs or where it's used in earnest. But there's also this gigantic um, zero-carbon manufacturing base, an industrial base that needs to be built. And so we could prioritize areas where the workforce is going to see declines. And we could even, in the case of oil and gas jobs, do so proactively. We could create a zero-carbon manufacturing revitalization employment boom in places before they suffer the declines.
1: That, that makes perfect sense to me. I've been writing recently uh, about uh, research that's going on in Alberta, taking the uh, very, very, very high carbon-intense uh, bitumen that comes out of the oil sands, and they're uh, t- trying to turn it into the precursor for carbon fiber manufacturing. and. I've talked to the, i interviewed the uh, sales manager, for instance, for Zoltec in Missouri, which is a big carbon f- fiber manufacturing company. And he tells me that if they're successful and, and it looks like they will be, they'll be able to produce carbon fiber at half the cost uh, that it currently is. And it makes sense to put the manufacturing plants near the source of the precursor. So what that would mean for say Alberta, which is the home of the oil sands, is that you would now have workers who maybe got displaced from the production of bitumen could move into the manufacture of the bitumen into precursor into carbon fiber manufacturing, and that seems to me to be kind of sort of a model that other communities uh, might be able to follow.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know the the. The acronym here is CCUS, Carbon Capture, Use and Storage. All right, now what you're talking about is using uh, fossil fuels um, uh, uh, for a different purpose where it is always gonna stay out of the atmosphere. But there's a, there are a lot of other um, examples in which you use the fossil fuels for energy, you capture the CO2 from, those, from, the, from the use of that fossil fuels. And then you use it either to make a product, like carbon fiber, or you store it in a geologic reservoir, okay? Now, any way you look at that, if it's CCUS, you need to move CO2 around from the places where it's produced to the places where you're either storing it or making something out of it. And so you need CO2 pipelines, okay? And we have, you know, we could make a you could make a Canadian grid of CO2 pipelines, or you could have a hub and spoke model centered on the oil fields where the stuff is being produced and where the geologic reservoirs to dispose of CO2 already are. And that would be a natural way to build a manufacturing base there, rather than to to, to do it another way.
1: Yes, agreed. And Now let's talk about education programs uh, to train a net zero workforce because you have a very interesting proposal for a GI Bill style program and I'm old enough to remember what GI Bill actually uh, was all more or less about. Yeah,
0: so you know the the um, the the way that you take care of vulnerable communities is that you have to make sure that they're engaged in planning so that they know what's happening. You have to have a regional office where they can learn, where they can get uh, a community block grants to do the training. You need to have uh, a source of capital that's available to attract, say, low-carbon industries to replace what they're going to lose proactively. And you also have to be able to retrain the workers um, for, for, the new, for the new industry. And some of those workers aren't gonna be tethered to their community and are gonna wanna join businesses that are booming elsewhere in the country. Because again, you get a big net increase in jobs, right? And so all of those say that you need a strong um, uh, uh, education and training program and retraining program that is focused on those workers. And a lot of those workers are pre-college but some of them, you also need all kinds of college-educated people, and you know you need a lot of R&D for the later to, to, to buy down the costs of some technologies that are still pre-commercial that you're going to need late in the game. And so you also need expanded um, uh, 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 you need expanded workers who have PhDs, you know, and work directly on technological development that sort of thing. So at all levels, you need expanded education and training, and so. And so we have a comprehensive program that begins with a GI Bill, which basically says, if you wanna work in this industry, we'll pay for your education, (laughs) full stop. Okay, that's what it says.
1: And in my interviews with um, uh, executives and and experts in uh, various uh, energy industries, I am often told that the worker of the 2020s will be different than the the workers who came before. For instance, they will have data attached to almost everything they do. And so they're going to need a new skill set or re- retraining, uh, reskilling, as it were. And that will get, provide a huge opportunity for the uh, you know, younger people who are entering the workforce because they would be more technologically adept, more digitally adept, than, than older workers perhaps would be. What's your take on that?
0: Well, I mean, it, it's, um, it's demonstrably happening already, right? There's no question a- about it. With that said though, um, an energy transition does have a lot of work for the next 30 years just building all this stuff. And that means that the traditional trades and construction workers have sort of 30 years of work. And if they're old, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) They don't need it to last longer than that. You know, I can say this as a 64-year-old, right?
1: Well, let's talk about uh, how that all gets managed, because what you're proposing is a two-year national transition task force. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, when we looked and and tried to
0: map out uh, where all the environmental injustice is in the current energy system and to try to identify the communities that were most at risk, what we ran into was just a lack of a comprehensive assessment there's no sort of wall-to-wall data there's some excellent regional ones there are some excellent studies of what has worked locally but there's not nearly enough to engage in the kind of proactive action that we're going to need across an entire country and so one of the earliest actions is to have a two-year intensive task force that's going to map that sort of stuff out. Then, on top of that, there's a there's a, a we recommend in the United States a White House level office to to track progress on this, and and also a um, um, a set of regional centers that would bring together local officials, county officials in Canada, provincial officials in um, the U.S., governors. Um, Uh, members of parliament, you know, in Canada and so on, but also mayors, right? And and county officials, where you can learn about what's happening and you get access to community block grants that you can take back to your community to do uh, a a, a sort of a proper assessment of what's to come and to start to formulate a plan about what to do with it. We also have an extension service built into our Department of Energy so that you can get technical assistance during that process. And finally, we have an independent... National Transition Corporation that provides direct aid and a conduit to capital that works together with a new green bank so that you can have the access to the capital that you're gonna to need to actually do the train uh, the transition. And then on top of all of that, we've got this educational program I'm talking about. So it's an integrated system that's designed to figure out what we need to do nationally and then to provide the local resources needed to do it from the bottom up and in which you're giving people in their local communities a voice and a say in what happens to them.
1: Now, let's wrap up our conversation, Steve, with going back to the big picture here. Because uh, when I read uh, President Biden's climate uh, policy and clean energy policy uh, that was in his campaign platform, he talks very specifically about how the United States has fallen behind the, uh, behind China uh, and to some extent Europe on, in terms of innovation and technological prowess. It is no longer a, it is not a clean energy superpower. It is not a clean tech superpower. And, and part of his, uh, his $2 trillion commitment is to, is to win that arms race He wants to put America back in global leadership, uh, a position of global leadership uh, in clean tech and clean energy. And if you look at this, uh, his strategy is a mobilization of the national economy and a mobilization of the people to, you know, seek out the, mitigate the risk and and seize the opportunities that are being presented by the energy transition, your workers are at the core of it. You've gotta have people with the right skills, the right training, you've gotta have everybody from solar installers to PhDs and and engineers and so on. All of that are a key component. And so for those folks who might say, well, why we shouldn't spend public money on this, let the market sort it out. uh, The other countries are not doing that. China's not doing that, Europe's not doing that. The other competitors are not doing that. And if this kind of a strategy is not put in place, it will hobble the US efforts to compete on a global level with these other countries. Would you agree with that or disagree?
0: I absolutely agree with that. You know, it's, um, it, it's a, a bit of a, a softball to somebody like me who believes in, in the power of human ingenuity to solve problems of this sort. Right, and and it's double the need for, uh, um, that that it would normally be. The U.S., you know, is still really pretty good at coming up with new gizmos and new ideas, new inventions. We've got an entrepreneurial segment of our culture that is still functioning and thriving, and this needs to be doubled down on in in energy and and the technologies related to energy. But we've not been particularly good about capitalizing on those inventions. We You know, we've been losing manufacturing. One of the reasons for the discontent in the working class is that we haven't done a good job of capitalizing on the inventions that we produce here. And so we need to do that as well. And that's where you really need to have an education and training program, not just focused on the engineers who are going to invent the, you know, the better electrolysis process and make a bajillion dollars doing it but also the people who are going to be working in the low carbon industries that you need.
1: Well, I I would agree wholeheartedly. Steve, thank you very much for this has been a very uh, interesting and enlightening conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.